For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for making us part of your day. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the things that matter. Don't try to waste too much time on the things that don't. Mostly just get good information to discern the times we live in. We do that by skipping all the caterwauling. And the story that is dominating political headlines right now is a whole lot of caterwauling. And what's worse, I hate to tell you, we're in for months upon months of it. And it was all predictable. We told you it was coming. Came a little earlier than we thought, but here it be. We're going to talk about the debt limit some more. Now, those of you that have been around a little while, and if you're my age, you're a little older. I'm 42 for the moment. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We might make it to 43. We'll have to see how that goes. But the thing is, if you've been around for a while, you realize these things are cyclical. We talk about the debt ceiling and the debt limit and spending every so often, just like clockwork. The reason we talk about it cyclically is because we never actually do anything to actually fix it other than talk about it and kick the can down the road a little further. This is what our Congress does best, of course. They are like water. They take the path of least resistance, the path of least work, and they do the bare minimum to get by to their next election and win election and come back so they can say, we're going to do more and then do a whole lot less. That's just the way it is. That's politics. We do grown folk talk here. This is a bipartisan problem, by the way. Uh, whoever's in power is spending too much money, according to the people out of power. People out of power love to rail against spending until they're in power, and then they get to do all the spending. Uh, folks, our government spends too much money. They always have. They always will because we don't make them do anything different. That's just the way it goes. However, the debt ceiling limit is a little bit different. Yes, we can argue about certain things. We have economists on that will explain this. It is a bit of an arbitrary number. No, we can't default on our debts as a country. That would be catastrophically bad for everybody. Everybody take a breath because most of this was all highly predictable stuff. And most of what's going on now is just buzzword, buzzword, buzzword. Let's just take a look at the headlines real quick uh, about our debt situation at the minute. Remember, nobody was talking about this a couple of days ago, except for a few folks knowing that this was going to be a problem with this Congress. Uh, CNN headline, debt ceiling, colon. Here's what you should know as a threat to default looms. New York Times headline, America hits its debt ceiling, raising economic fears. Washington Post, what past debt ceiling fights can tell us about what will happen next? These are all within the last few hours as I'm recording this, by the way. CNN headline, U.S. hits debt ceiling, prompting Treasury to take extraordinary measures. Not really, they're just measures, but we got to pump up that headline. Uh, Guardian headline. U.S. hits borrowing limit, kicking off fight between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, AP News. Oh, they got a live tracker of it. Oh, that's really important. Go over to The Guardian. Check out their live tracking of something that we're going to be doing for months on end. Pass. AP headline. U.S. Treasury buys time for Biden and GOP on debt limit deal. Oh, we're always, you know, it's always got to be a horse race. We got to get to the deal, right? New York Times secondary headline. How to invest as the debt ceiling looms. That'll get good clicks. CNBC, they're supposed to be kind of the responsible adults in the room. Yellen says Treasury is taking extraordinary measures to avoid the default. Washington Post, analysis, McCarthy puts a spin on spending math to justify the debt limit fight. Folks, we can skip a lot of this. They're going to raise the debt limit. I know Kevin McCarthy's saying he's not, but he's going to. One way or the other, they're going to do it because they have to do it. We've seen this movie before. Now, this particular Congress, GOP controlled, and, with, and what we've seen out of Kevin McCarthy so far, yeah, this might be a lot messier than usual, and there's probably going to be a lot of collateral damage. And yes, he is going to have to dig in his heels because of the things and promises he made. Somehow, some way, some measure, they're going to raise the debt limit. It's going to happen. 
It's just a matter of when, how much fuss and how much caterwauling and the political fallout there. Here's the dirty little secret of all this. The American people do not care about government spending. Oh, I know they say they do. I know politicians say they do. But what do we say on this program? Actions, not words, right? We've seen this movie before, folks. The American people do not care about government spending being out of control. COVID happened. They demanded it. We demanded it. Spend money. Fix this problem. Open the money spigots. Now, responsible people were saying this is a bad idea. It's going to be unaccountable money. There's going to be a lot of fraud, waste, and abuse. We said that. You can go back and listen. It's all on video. And folks were right about that. But the American people, us collectively, we demand the money spigot of government stay open for what we want it to be. And then we complain about spending on the things that get spent on things that we don't want money spent on. And that depends on your ideology and political power. But there's a lot of hypocrisy here. But no, the American people don't really care about the spending. In fact, it's so bad. And our blissful ignorance on the fiscal condition of our country is you get politically punished if anybody dares brings it up. Seriously, try to do something like any kind of even modicum of entitlement reform. You're going to get shouted out of the building, if not worse. If you even talk about zero budgeting and things like this. Remember, government cuts, when they're talking about those, they aren't really cuts. Those are cuts in gross of spending, not actual spending. There's places you could cut a lot of spending, things like the DOD. But here's how the game goes. And it's the same for education and the same for transportation, same for everything else. But DOD and education are the worst because you can fly the flag of the troops and you can wave the thing about the children. Oh, we got to do it for the children. Here's the problem. There's so much spending that has nothing to do with frontline troops and has nothing to do with in-classroom students and in-classroom teachers. You're funding the bureaucracies. Of course, we could spend money more wisely and better, probably a lot less of it there. But that's not what we're talking about with these things. No, we're not going to default on our debt. Somehow, some way, it's going to get done. Kevin McCarthy promising that they're not going to do it is foolish because what's going to eventually happen is enough pressure will be brought to bear and enough pain will be brought to bear that him or somebody that replaces him because of the promises he's made, he's probably painted himself in a corner here, is going to have to do it. These things are cyclical. Just go look it up. Don't take my word for it. Go look up every debt limit fight we've ever had. They all end the same way. Lots of caterwauling, lots of buzzwords. The debt ceiling gets raised. And no, we don't really care about spending as an electorate, because if we did, we wouldn't keep having this cycle over and over again. So we can throw stones rightfully at Congress for this crisis, which is of their own making, and that they are now going to throw themselves a parade for for doing the bare minimum of fixing it here in a week or months or whenever they get around to it. That's their game. It's failure theater in its purest form, doing the bare minimum, not doing it, grandstanding, then throwing a parade when you get around to actually doing it and claiming victory. But we should save some of that blame for us, the electorate, the American people. We've tolerated this for so long, we don't even notice it anymore. That's a sad commentary. Yes, we should care about the fiscal health of our country. Yes, we should have debates on spending. But mostly as long as the things we want get funded and we don't have to be bothered with it and we don't have to have our blissful ignorance interrupted, then we're fine. If they actually have a crisis over the debt limit, that will burst that bubble and people will holler because they don't like chaos to make it go away out of the headlines, just fix it and move along. And then they'll go back to forgetting it. And then next year, the year after that, we'll do this all over again. So we don't ever learn the lesson. Cycles, folks, you don't break them. You stay stuck in them. And we're stuck in a debt limit cycle, a no budgeting cycle, a continuing resolution cycle because we have an unserious Congress, because we're an unserious people. When we take it seriously, it'll look different. More hotel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we're excited to have her. She has become our Western correspondent because she's out there in the beautiful Front Range of Colorado, which I got to enjoy back in October. We'll talk about that in a minute. Chris Kiefer, she's a columnist at the Denver Post. She has a whole bunch of animals, including a cat in her lap, if you're watching on the YouTube channel, and we're going to talk to her like we love to do. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back on the program. It is good to be back. Um, yeah, it's it's rather cold here, um, but uh, we're having a great day. Yeah, y'all went through the one of the viral videos of the bomb cyclone or whatever everybody went through over the holidays there was the live shot with time lapse of Denver where it went from nice to Antarctica in about 45 minutes. For people that don't live in the mountains and at altitude like that, just explain to them how fast the wet. Look, I was there last week of October and it was 75 every day. Talk to people about just how fast the weather changes on the front range up there, because it really is something you can sit there and watch the weather coming at you. Yes, it is pretty crazy here because we are at a higher altitude. We get epic hail, unfortunately, in the uh, spring, summer and fall. I've got uh, I've had golf ball size hail hit my house uh, to say that if you're in the insurance industry, this might be a good place to relocate. Um but yeah, it can change from, it can be 75 degrees in the winter with bright sunshine and then drop down into like the 30s. It's been a cold winter, which I think is nice. I like snow, but uh, not everybody does. Yeah. All right. So as a columnist, you tackle the important issues of the day. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Or in this case, as you're writing, which came first, the cost increase in poultry or the cost increase in the eggs? Well, it, it, the problem here is that a lot of our poultry has died. So we've lost 6 million birds from avian flu. We've also lost a lot of wild birds, uh, great horned owls, also uh, red-tailed hawks, uh, very susceptible to avian flu. I have a flock of five hens. Luckily, they have not gotten avian flu, but it has been a big deal. In fact, in December, I think uh, well over a million birds slaughtered because of, of avian flu, and that has driven the price of eggs up. It's not a Colorado problem exclusively. 47 states have had an issue with avian flu, and it's driven the price of eggs pretty pretty high. Yeah, Krista Kiefer joining us. Here's the problem with eggs is cost of living is going up for everybody. Of course, we know about inflation. Poultry is one of those things that covers a couple of different things because they do produce eggs. They're also, you know, they also produce feed for other animals. They also produce meat, chicken as we buy it, which is one of the most popular meats in America. It's also historically supposed to be the cheaper meat, you know, the little bit more affordable meat. So this crosses a couple different streams all at once, doesn't it? So well, uh, I don't know that meat hens have been as affected. Uh, meat birds basically have a lifespan of about six months. Uh, once hatched, they sit around gaining, you know, uh, gaining mass basically for six months and then they're slaughtered. Laying hens usually kept around for about two years. I keep mine for the natural lifespan, which is up to 10 years, but usually around two, they slaughter those birds and they become your Campbell's chicken noodle soup just because layers are a little too, too tough for people to have on their kitchen table just as a roasted hen. But yes, it is a, it is a big deal. Avian flu is a significant problem. It doesn't actually transfer to humans, but it kills an awful lot of birds. Yeah. And then the thing that happens here is it gets into, th you know, avian flu has been around for a long time. This is something that it almost seems cyclical at this point, right? Every couple of years we have an mm -hmm. outbreak of this, but it goes right back into something we've talked about before. And we've talked with you about before. Here we go again with a conversation of how do we balance an economic concern, which is, you know, food needs to be as cheap as possible for as many people as possible to afford it with humanitarian concerns, how these birds are taken care of, even though they are for food production. That's a big deal because when you start talking about losing 6 million birds, the reason you lose so many in avian flu is because they're kept in tight quarters. They're all, but it's just like we went through with COVID, you know, infectious disease spreads in bunches. Well, poultry farms to be cost effective have to be bunches of birds. I've seen the mountain air farms we have near where I live before. There's no way really around that, but it brings us back to the old conversation again. How do we balance economic concerns and feeding everybody with also being humane to these animals? And that definitely is a concern. Here in Colorado, two years ago, the legislature passed a, a new law saying that all of the chickens have to have uh, about a square foot of space, which seems pretty minimal, if you ask me. In the past, the past number of decades, the kind of big factory farms have 
started pushing for tighter and tighter quarters. So you've got a whole bunch of hens in a cage, barely able to move, spend their lives standing on, on you know, metal metal bars while uh, eating food and, and creating eggs. And consumers are saying we don't we don't want that anymore. Yeah, we want economically sound uh, egg policies, but we do not necessarily want animals to be treated cruelly. So consumers are pushing towards more humane options, cage-free and free-range, not exactly the same thing, but at least get these birds out of these cages. Large entities, big restaurants like Burger King, Marriott, and so forth are, are also moving towards purchasing eggs from humane operations. And now legislator, legislatures around the country, maybe less than a dozen, have put forth rules that say, if you want to sell eggs in this state, your hens have to have at least a square foot of space. And then starting next year, at least have to be out of the cage. That doesn't mean they you know, can't be packed into a big room, but at least they can move around a little bit. Yeah, Krista Kay for joining us. I like it when you wrote about this in your pieces, and we're going to link to her Substack where she reruns her columns as well. This is so much not a new problem that you quoted something from 1641, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. That is not a, you know, I don't know what that sounds like, but the Massachusetts Body of Liberties was actually a political thing, policy-making arm, I guess you would call it in modern parlance. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because they wrote it in the old English kind of things, but... 1641 to today, and here they are talking about the exact same issues. Yeah, that was the first uh, kind of uh, humane treatment standards set up in this country during the colonial era. But even if we go back in time, if you look at the old you know, Hebrew law, for example, there are some some uh, rules in there about how you treat your animals. Um, you know, even on the Sabbath, if your oxen or your donkey falls into a hole you still can pull that animal out. Um, you know, there's an expectation that animals that are used as beasts of burden, also animals that are used as food, are treated humanely. And I'm a big meat eater. I love, uh, uh, you know, I love a good steak. I love game. I'm always telling people that I'll trade my homemade jam for any game they can give me. But I, I don't want animals treated poorly simply so that I can eat their protein. I want animals to be treated well. And if we look at with cattle, cattle live pretty decent lives as they spend a good deal of their life out in the field, but pigs and chickens are treated really abysmally in a lot of cases. And we're, I'm, I'm 100% behind these new rules to make sure that they've got at least some quality of life while they're alive. Yeah, Krista Caver. It's funny you mentioned cows in comparison. Um, Yellowstone's immensely popular, most popular TV show in America right now. The opening scene of the first episode was the the bullet line on the first scene was Kevin Costner looking at the cow and going, amazing what we do to keep you fed, right? We understand <laughs> that, you know, livestock is money. It's a commodity, not just food. We talked before with you about pork. Um, now we're talking about chickens. There does seem to be an overarching, we're joking about this 1641 law that's written about tyranny and tyranny spelled T-I-R-R-A-N-N-Y and cruelty is uh, with an I-E at the end. You know, there does seem to be a thread where people are like, okay, look, there's got to be a way to do both with modern technology. You know, this is another one of those things social media changed is because we have pictures inside those facilities. Look, I've been on the kill floor at Smithfield Processing. It is not pretty. People don't want to see that especially people that want to eat meat. We know what we can see it now. We're in the past. You couldn't see where your food came from. People want a balance. So where is the balance? Is it going to be a regulatory fix? Is it going to be a legislative fix? Or is it just going to be public pressure in the market saying that, or is it a combination thereof? I think it's a combination thereof. So a couple of years ago, I started buying cage-free eggs, but not that much more money. Um, I don't bother with the whole organic thing. <laughs> Here's a kind of funny thing. People say, you'll, you'll look at these expensive eggs and they'll say vegetarian fed. Well, you know, hens are omnivores. If I throw meat into my the pen where I keep my hens, they'll fight over it. They'll, they'll share the salad, but they'll fight over the meat. So, you know, if you see organic or, you know, vegetarian on that label, it doesn't really mean much, except that those poor hens are deprived of the pleasure of meat. But the cage-free option or even the free-range option, I think, is something that customers really need to look for. I also have my own hens, which lay about 10 months out of the year, so I don't even buy eggs much of the time. 
and I give away a lot of eggs because they're good producers. So I, I, I think that consumers can make good choices, but at some point you will always have market pressures, consumers who don't care about humane standards and producers who also do not care about humane standards. And that's where you have to have the legislature stepping in. Yeah, Chris Kay for joining us. You just mentioned it, so let's talk about it for folks that, you know, like I've, I've got a local pork guy that I go to, but I can only do that about four or five times a year because he's a small family farm. He only goes, he can only do it when he goes to processing and then he calls me like, hey, I'm coming back from the processor. What do you want? I can't feed my family like that. And most other people can. And a lot of people don't even have that options. So when they just go to a grocery store, what are they looking for? Because the late, you know, people label about everything. You know, my local grocery chain does have a local label for certain things, but some folks don't have that. What should they actually look at? Look, you're somebody that pays attention to this. You raise your own chickens, like you said. Give them a few things to look for beyond just the marketing labels to know that they can feel good about what they're getting. I would look for cage-free or free-range. So cage-free means they're not in a cage, but they are in a, in a big facility. There's a lot of birds in one place. It's not necessarily inhumane, but cage-free is, that's what cage-free is. If you do free-range, those animals have a lot more space. And I buy one or the other, depending on the price. And then when it comes to uh, meat hens, um, those hens are also often treated really poorly. And I'm kind of moving away. As much as I love chicken, I am kind of moving away from both chicken and pork unless I can make sure that I'm getting those animals from a humane operation. And I'm just simply eating a lot more beef uh, just because I know those animals are treated, treated well. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, hadn't seen him in a bit, but he's a good friend of ours. Roy, your boy Roy on the Twitter. We just call him Roy because that would be weird in real life. Roy, how are you, my friend? Good to see you again. Pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a good new year so far. Yeah, and it's <laughs> no shortage of lines going on, but I want to talk to you about a little energy policy because something really big happened in the last few days that got very little coverage because we got the Harry book and the madness in Congress and whatever else everybody else is talking about these days. And I think there was a football game this week. Something really important happened though. The news came out of Europe about their energy use where it comes to Russia and where it comes to their efforts to kind of wean themselves off Russian energy, really big, important stuff. And it just didn't get the headlines, but it really ought to have. Right. Yeah. So um, this week, the uh, the United States became, um, overtook Russia as the chief uh, energy supplier to Europe, um, which is huge, um, especially considering that the Russians provided, I think, a quarter of um, Europe's energy for natural gas, oil, and um, other distillates. Yeah, and the important change here is the movement of LNG, liquefied natural gas. This has been the game changer. Now, this is an expensive way to move it. But it's also a very fast and efficient way to move it. Once you have that expensive infrastructure in place, that's really been the game changer here because they were their goals themselves were like 10, 15 percent this year. It looks like they're going to hit 25 percent this year on some estimates. That's game changing when it comes to the geopolitical, but also the economic. They got a little bit of a break because the European winter looks like it's going to be a little more mild than they thought it was. So that's helping. The prices are coming down a little bit. But that infrastructure, it's expensive, but once it's in place, boy, they've been able to turn this around really, really fast. No, you're right. The uh, And the Norwegians have really stepped up in um, supplying their own supplies of uh, natural gas, uh, oil, and other distillates through three main pipelines that go towards Germany. Um, and the LNG plants, uh, they're extremely expensive, extremely um, costly to maintain. But once you actually establish them, um, these ships that um, leave the Gulf of Mexico, Texas, Louisiana um, can deliver massive amounts of energy to Europe. And the Germans sure need it because uh, they've shut down all their nuclear plants and they're trying to fire up old coal-fired plants to uh, stay warm. But thank God the winter isn't too bad over in Europe. Yeah, it looks like it. Roy joining us. That brings us to where I want to talk about us. We have some really good LNG facilities, Elba Island and Savannah, Freeport down in Texas, Louisiana. 
we should have at least a half dozen more than what we have if we would have had a little vision back about 10, 15 years ago, right? right? This is an argument for infrastructure and energy, not just chasing gas prices. I know you wrote about crude oil prices. We'll talk about that in a second. That's the stuff that gets the headlines, right? Things like oil refineries, things like LNG plants, the cutting edge of this kind of technology that we've known about for a while, but we really haven't been building the way we should. Imagine what we could have been doing with Europe if we had a little bit of vision and had more East Coast or Gulf Coast LNG plants. When this came up, we really could have been doing some business here. Right. No, the the last uh, the newest refinery in the United States was built in 1976. Um, obviously, I was not alive in 1976, but um, the sort of refinery crunch, the refinery capacity crunch has really hit home in the last two years. Um, the United States has lost about 1.1 million barrels per day capacity in a little less than two years, uh, mostly due to the pandemic, but also due to the sort of um, government interference in the oil and gas sector. And a lot of these refineries are just are just ordinary businesses. They need to you know, balance their books, look at the future and see where they can make some money. Uh, but unfortunately, there is a, um, a really uh, the East Coast's largest refinery in Philadelphia uh, shut down due to a, um, an accident that happened. Um, and the company just looked at their books and said it would be prohibitively more expensive to um, repair the plant and continue production than just to shut it down. Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. This brings us to what you were writing about, about crude oil prices. For, just let's keep this on kind of a basic level. Explain it to me so even I can understand it, though. Crude oil prices affects way more than just gasoline. And those are two different things, and people sometimes mix them up. This involves a lot of things. You wrote about it. Heating oil. Car Look, we had kerosene heaters when I was younger because uh, yep. we still had a split. We had a split use stove because they were still <laughs> from back in the day. We didn't burn coal anymore, but it still had the coal burner on it. So we used kerosene heaters instead. A lot of, a lot of folks, especially in the Northeast, still use kerosene, jet fuel, um, other byproducts. Crude oil affects a whole lot more stuff. So when we're not refining as much as we could and we haven't kept up with refineries as much as we could, this puts us susceptible to these giant swings in the crude oil prices. It affects a lot of things in the economy besides just that number that hits the headlines. No, you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, the kerosene, um, kerosene's use as a source of heat. Um, now, nationally, 14 percent of Americans use kerosene as a heating source for their home. That's mostly concentrated in the Northeast, where obviously it's very, very cold. But you're right. Um, when you have a, a barrel of crude oil and it goes into the refinery, it can be made into all these different distillates, um, kerosene being a very highly refined, very pure um, distillate. And most folks that use kerosene live in older homes or live in mobile homes where the um, the heating oil tank or the, or the kerosene tank is located outside of the home, so where it's exposed to the elements. So kerosene actually has a much lower freezing point than diesel or heating oil, which is why it's so economical for these folks to heat their homes with in really cold places. Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. You talked about this when you wrote about it in National Review, too. The cost of this isn't just the price of kerosene, which is huge now. I remember when kerosene was cheaper than gasoline way back in the day when we were using it. You know, you're talking $6 a gallon for kerosene right now. The problem is that's not the only price we're paying. Places like Massachusetts, you deal with it. Maine, which you're very familiar with, places where it gets really cold in the wintertime. Now, things like the omnibus bill and things like this, we're having to put massive outlays in heating assistance. This is costing millions and millions of dollars on top of the actual cost of the fuel. We're making this more expensive than it really needs to be. And I hate to loop back to where we started, but things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. This is why that infrastructure is a big deal. This is why how we negotiate with other countries, how we do it. It all runs into we end up paying more, not only at the pump for this stuff, but in subsidies to help people afford it. Right. And um, this it was it's sort of a, a perfect storm of of incidents that led to this. The, um, the you'll remember the moratorium that was placed on um, drilling permits uh, back in the summer. Now, normally, most people would think that would have nothing to do with heating oil prices or kerosene prices in the winter. But during that time of the summer is when wholesalers and distributors purchase in bulk heating oil, kerosene to prepare for the winter when prices are low, when you and I aren't heating our homes in the middle of the summer, right? So because they put out that moratorium and the prices shot up, a lot of these wholesalers and retailers waited to purchase, to purchase their supplies, hoping that the price would go down. And because we're coming out of this pandemic and everybody's hopping on planes now, the airline industry 
which also is one of the main um, consumers of kerosene. Um, some refineries use the acronym uh, SKF for superior kerosene fuel. Um, jet fuel and kerosene are by and large the same fuel. So now you have a massive demand for the airline industry to fuel their planes, but you also have this um, shortage where wholesalers and retailers are now having to buy kerosene even more now that they've waited and the price still hasn't gone down. So you have these shortages. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. Let's talk about the other side of this, because that's that's the political and the economic side of it. There's also the political and environmental side of this. Here's something I don't think it's talked about enough on this. I'm I'm sensitive to people that have environmental concerns about refining oil. It's a mess. Look, I used to work and live in the Huntington Ashland area, the Catlettsburg refinery. I drove by it all the time. It is a dirty business. There's not a super clean way to do it. However, like you just said, the last refineries we built was in the 70s. Not only the green technology, but the refining technology has gone down the road 40, 50 years. We have new technology to do a better, cleaner in those bridges before we get to that bright new future that always seems over the horizon, right? That's part of this that doesn't get talked about is we're not going to build a 1970s refinery. We're going to build a 2020 refinery or 2030 refinery probably with by the time you do the lead time and stuff. Should we be discussing it that way as like, look, technology isn't stagnant, not just in the green stuff. The way we use fossil fuels is also improving incrementally. Those two things need to bridge each other. And I don't think we talk about it correctly in that way. No, you're absolutely right. And we have gotten to the point where a single barrel, 42 gallons of oil, of unrefined oil can go into a refinery and 44 gallons of different distillates can be produced. So we actually can produce more from less. Um, so you're absolutely right. The 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 notion that refining is still stuck in this like sort of 1970s, very environmentally um, impactful state is is just misguided. Um, and we've seen from these price hikes that it's mostly the folks, the low income folks, the folks that are living in in mobile homes, in older homes, folks that are on um, Social Security fixed income that are really feeling the, pr the pinch from these prices. Yeah, Roy Matthews, let's talk about some other low-income folks. I went and looked it up. I kind of knew it, but I want to make sure. Natural gas production, okay? 
which is a lot cleaner than coal mining and a lot cleaner than oil refinery, although there is environmental impacts and needs to be regulated. And we all understand that. Look, I'm sensitive to this stuff. I'm from West Virginia. I've seen firsthand what strip mining does. I've seen what clear cut logging does. There's a big patch of where I hunted growing up right beside where I grew up, where they stripped it for development and found out they couldn't drill down far enough to put in septic. So it's set barren for 20 years. And it ticks me off every time I go to my mom and dad's house. I hate that part of it. However, we can reasonably use these resources. Look at this list of natural gas production. I'm talking about low income. Biggest natural gas field in America is Marcellus Shade. That's Pennsylvania, West Virginia, the heart of Appalachian. You don't think they could use some economic developments? The next three, Louisiana and Texas. Fayetteville Shell's number five. That's Arkansas. I lived in Arkansas. I can tell you firsthand those folks could use some economic development, right? New Mexico and Colorado, the San Juan Basin. The Pinedale gas field in Wyoming, Wattenberg gas field in Colorado rounds out the top 10. Texas has four of these in the top 10. These are areas of the country that have a lot of land. There's a lot of room out there. We should be able to find a balance between the environmental concerns, which are valid, and the economics concerns. And these are all areas of the country that could probably use the economic development at the same time when you look at the list and where it's actually at. No, you're absolutely right. And the folks uh, the counter argument to this folks will point to these um, smaller facilities that also refine different distillates um, that have been built in the last 10 15 years well those facilities are in the 10,000 barrels per day range most of them go up to mainly 20,000 barrels per day for these refineries that we need we need refineries that are capable of producing hundreds of thousands of barrels a day um, and when we have this shrink this this refinery shrinkage um, that also impacts um, folks' ability to purchase the kerosene. Most wholesalers and retailers, I don't know if you've ever um, purchased um, heating oil or kerosene for your home, but most of these whole wholesalers and retailers, in order to make money, in order to keep their businesses afloat, they require a minimum uh, amount of minimum sale, so to speak. Um, and most of the minimum sale is around 100 gallons. And if kerosene is at six dollars a gallon that's the low end um you're paying six hundred dollars for a hundred gallons of kerosene and you know i talked to some older folks in in maine when i was still living there um for folks that are living on a fixed income in their 70s most of them are living on 1300 bucks a month that's more than half of your monthly income and you still gotta put gas in your car go see your grandkids get groceries get all these all these supplies so it it really starts to hurt the folks that um really can't afford um, most of these wild price spots. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, hadn't seen him in a minute. Glad to have him back. Jack Salmon back on the program with us. He comes from George Mason. He's got exciting new opportunities on the horizon, though. We'll ask him about that in just a minute. We're going to talk about the latest itineration of a very, very old problem, my friend. Jack, how are you? Great to have you back. I'm very well. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be back here. Great to have you back. All right, here's the deal. I We were talking about this a minute before we started recording, though, but I would love to explain to 90s and 2000s political me the fact that we cannot even discuss Social Security now because it used to be the GOP. This is all they ever talked about. They would never be quiet about it. George W. Bush actually tried to do some legislative stuff on this. Why is the environment surrounding Social Security politically changed? We know financially this is one of those, you know, iceberg things. It's just coming, 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 coming. But politically, this discourse has really changed the last 10, 15 years, hasn't it? It certainly has. I, I often see similarities between Social Security in the US and the National Health Service back in my home country of the UK, it's really become the sort of crown jewels of American politics. Nobody dare touch it. Nobody dare talk about it. Any mention of even the smallest tweaks are shouted down as, as benefit cuts, even if that isn't the case. Yeah, here's the thing. The problem with this is Social Security was the government promising people money and taking people's money in the promise that they're going to get it back at some time. So just on a visceral, basic level, we can talk about all the policy. We can talk about all the math and whatever. That's what people hear. Hey, the government promised me this. They, I see it go out of my check. I want it back. 
I don't I don't know that you're going to ever have a policy discussion that's going to break through that understanding for most people. Is that a fair way to put the problem? That that is a fairly accurate uh, way to look at it. There's there's actually a, 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 a quite a broad misconception that people have about social security. They tend to think that as they pay in, the money they're paying in goes into a special fund reserved just for them. And when they retire, they pull from that very fund. In actual fact, the the payees, the people who are paying the payroll taxes today, they're actually financing the retired people today. So it's it's essentially going out as, as quick as it's going in. So there isn't actually a fund that's reserved for you once you reach retirement. If you're a younger person like myself, you're probably not going to see the types of generous benefits that current beneficiaries are receiving because the pool of funds is getting smaller and smaller. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, it's, it's eventually going to reach depletion. Yeah. And Jack Salmon joining us. Look, math is math. Math isn't changing. And we can talk about, you know, when's it going to go insolvent, cuts, cuts to projected growth, cuts to projected decline. People's eyes just kind of roll in the back of their head when they start getting into the deep numbers here. Give me one or two of the top line numbers that when they pop up in a headline, people should be paying attention to. Is it the percentage we're spending on it? Is it the rates of growth? Is it what's the number that folks should kind of cut through the noise. And even if they don't understand the math, when they just hear that number, or that term go, oh, that's the one I need to pay attention to here. As many numbers I could talk about, and being an economist, I'd like to talk about a lot of them. But if I have to talk about one, it would be a percentage and it would be a 23%. 23% is the, the estimated cut in social security benefits that is automatically built into the system that the social security... Tr- Board of Trustees estimates will happen in 2034 if we do nothing. And the CBO recently released a report and they estimate 2033. So we've got about a decade when that 23% benefit cut comes in if we do nothing. So that's a good number to keep in mind. Yeah, Jack Salmon joining us. Here's the larger problem with all this. And again, the numbers depend because the numbers on projections and cost of living. So the numbers move around a little bit. Somewhere right around that 20, 21%, 22%, that's the percentage of the U.S. budget that's going to Social Security. That is an enormous chunk of money. Bigger picture, though, if you put Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare, ACA, and all the other health stuff all together, now you're getting almost to 50% of the federal budget in, in entitlements. So there's no way that you're ever going to do anything like spending cuts, entitlement cuts, anything without touching half of the U.S. budget politically nobody's going to touch half of the U.S. budget. This is just the rock and the hard place reality of where we're at on this, right? Correct. And that was that was part of my uh, reasoning for, for writing that piece that I wrote, because I know there's a, there's a lot of disagreement on these issues. There are proposals from people on the left who want to raise payroll taxes, especially payroll taxes on the rich as they see it. And then any sort of even minor suggestion of reduction in benefits or raising the retirement age is always met with strict opposition. So the purpose of my piece was to try and offer some sort of middle of the road options for policymakers to find consensus on. So I talked about things like small adjustments in the in the retirement age. So when the Social Security program was first founded in the 1930s, they determined that 65 was an appropriate age because it was around life expectancy at the time. And so it was a program meant for those who had stopped working and were living in poverty. There was a very small number of people that fell into that category. Now, since then, the average life expectancy has risen about 15 years, but the retirement the, the retirement age to claim four benefits has only risen by three. So there's a huge there's a huge gap there now, and um, that's that's obviously a, a large part of the problem. So that's one of that's one of the solutions is to is to make small tweaks to the retirement age. Another one would be to change the cost of living adjustment. So people who are receiving Social Security benefits this year, they're going to get an 8.7% increase in the benefits compared to last year. And that, that's an astronomical increase in benefit payments. It's, it's, it's truly unsustainable. So changing the way that we measure the, um, the cost of living adjustment, rather than using the CPI, if we instead use what's called the chain CPI, it's a slight, a very, very slightly um, lower than these than the than the headline CPI. So it would it would be tiny minuscule changes in benefits. Maybe beneficiaries would get about four dollars a month less than they would otherwise get, but it makes a big difference to the overall budget when you consider there are 65 million beneficiaries on this program. 
Yeah, and another thing you touched on in your piece, we're going to link to it, Jack Sam's piece in Real Clear Policy. We'll link to it. Make sure you read through the whole piece yourself. It's also got a couple links in there that are really important to dig into, like eligibility requirements, things like this. I've already done it a couple times just in this short amount of time we've been covering it. We use Social Security as a really big umbrella term for a whole lot of stuff when you get into the details. Like you said, you're an economist. Social Security means many different things, and I just did it, so I'm guilty of this too. Social Security can mean just regular retirement for folks. That's how a lot of people see it. Oh, that's going to be a big chunk of my retirement. Um, but there's also Social Security disability. There's old age and benefits survivors. There's a lot of other things under the umbrella. Walk through the terminology for just a second, though, that maybe part of this problem is we've got a lot of stuff built in under, quote unquote, Social Security when we're talking about it like this. When you go to put it to pen and paper and policy in the black and white of the law, it's way more complicated than just that. Yeah, that's quite right. And uh, I just briefly build off something you mentioned that is, you know, when you're thinking about Social Security, you're really thinking about your retirement funds. So this includes your private retirement savings. You have a 401k or you have an IRA. Those should be your priorities. Whether or not you're considering changes in, in Social Security in the future, you should really be prioritizing saving as much as you can in your private accounts, in your, in your work-based retirement accounts, because those are the funds that you can actually rely on. Um, and there won't be benefit cuts to those uh, they also tend to grow much faster because they're, they're more diversified which is another issue with the social security trust fund it's it's not diversified it grows at two or three percent per year with its interest rates but yeah you're quite right that it's it's, it's more than just uh, retirement benefits a large chunk of the budget is also um, what we call social security disability insurance and so that's for uh, workers who have been deemed ineligible to work because of a disability and there's about 12 million workers who are currently claiming that that benefit so that also pulls from the social security uh, trust funds as well so it's it, it, it's really a diverse range of different programs rolled into one very large program that's that, as we say it's going insolvent For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Yeah, Jack Salmon joining us. You mentioned the SSDI portion of this. This is up to almost 12 million Americans that get SSDI, but you actually brought up part of what's the real problem with it. Yes, there's eligible. We could talk about eligibility and things like that. One of the built-in problems with SSDI is it's all-or-nothing disability. There's no range to it. You get everything or you get nothing, and if you get everything, you can't work at all. This is separate from other federal systems like VA disabilities for the veterans, where it's based off of what you physically are, your physical incapacitations based off what you could previously do. You get it, but you can still work. You get a percentage. Some of this is just stuff in the policy of writing like all or nothing language like SSDI. There seems like there's a lot of regulatory and legislative room to do some real reform in here without having to get into that sticky thing of, oh, we're taking benefits from people. We could do some small stuff in here like maybe having a step program to SSDI so more people are eligible for it, but they're eligible for a percentage that reflects what they need. Just little ideas like that that we could do instead of this whole reform Social Security that's never going to get any political traction. Right. And and the, the eligibility aspect is, is is really quite problematic. A lot of those eligibility requirements came in in the 1980s. And one of the, just, just to give one example, one of the um, regulations is called the medical vocational grid. And it it was really changing the way in which physicians um, define disabilities and it made it much more vague. So there was a huge explosion in uh, disabilities such as musculoskeletal disease and mental mental disorders because those are quite hard to define, they're quite hard to diagnose. And so th those now make up the vast majority of all claims on those programs. And we've, we've seen something like a five-fold increase just in the last couple of decades. Um, one of the lessons that 
that, that can be drawn from this is is to look to international examples. So I often look to the UK because that's where I'm from and I'm quite familiar with, with the public policy space there. And after 2010, there were some uh, reforms made to the disability insurance program in the UK. One of the key distinctions that they made was, was making a very clear distinction between what a disability, whether a worker was disabled or whether a worker was incapacitated. So you can be disabled and you can carry out certain certain roles, certain kinds of jobs. And so making that distinction was very important in helping people get back to work. But it also meant that those disabled workers who were able and willing to work were able to make more money and they weren't facing those sorts of benefit cliffs that, that we often see here in the U.S. that disincentivize workers from even looking for work. Yeah. And here's another example, since you just brought it up something I'm familiar with, one of the reasons I do what I do now, where I got to where I couldn't work a real job. Technology has changed now where people can work from home and they can't, even folks with physical or mental or whatever disabilities, the technology hasn't been written into these laws to catch up. So that's another policy area where you could probably do a whole lot of good with a little bit of tweaking without getting into the whole mess of the whole thing, you would think, if you had a little bit of willpower and some legislators that wanted to do it. That's certainly something that should be taken into consideration. When you really think about it, most of this legislation was drafted before the invention of the internet. So when you consider those those those, those types of facts, it, it, it really sort of brings it home to the fact that, you know, these aren't, most workers today aren't going down mines. They aren't lumberjacks. The vast majority of them are working office jobs or service sector jobs where they're really not doing hard manual labor. And so we should logically be seeing a huge decrease in disability claims given this trajectory and the change of the workplace and the change of the work workplace environments. But we've actually seen quite the opposite. So there's something definitely to look into there. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.